me in your Bible to a very familiar passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and I'll read verse number 11. John chapter 1 and verse number 11. This morning I want to talk to you about man's greatest insult to God. Man's greatest insult to God. To think about it causes a chill to come in my heart. To think that a human being could insult a holy God, a gracious God, a loving God. And yet day after day, men insult this holy God. In John 1 and verse 11, the familiar verse reads like this. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. I think in many ways, this is one of the saddest verses to me in the Bible. To think that our Lord would come to those whom he claimed as his own, and yet to have those very own return to him away and reject him. I can think of no sadder thing than that if it were the experience of any of us. If perchance you were to go home to your family today and find that when you came through the door, they literally threw you out. What a sad experience. What a heart-rending, heart-breaking experience that would be. And yet again, that very scene is enacted day by day by multitudes of men and women around this world. This verse talks about that act of a gracious God giving to man the greatest gift and yet man insulting God by refusing that gift. I wonder how you would feel on Christmas morning if after you had done your best to purchase one of the finest gifts that you could imagine for one that you love so dearly. And you brought that gift and wrapped it up and put it under the tree. And then that loved one were to see under the tree that gift that you had given to them. Their, your, their name is on it, the person that it is from. And then to see that person that your heart just adores turn away, throw the gift away, refuse it, have nothing to do with it. I can think of nothing that would tear at my heartstrings anymore than to have a gift that I've given to a loved one refused and despised. I think indeed that would be the highest of all insults to my heart and I believe it would be to yours as well. The word insult is defined in the dictionary as to treat with contempt. And you see, my friend, when a man is presented God's greatest gift and man refuses that gift, it is actually to treat with with contempt the gift that God considered the greatest gift of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well did the prophet Isaiah describe it when he said, he is despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. And he was despised and we esteemed him not. In other words, the prophet is saying, man has not held this one, the son of God, the Messiah, in an esteemed place. 
When a man has presented the Lord Jesus and, and given a choice as to whether or not he will receive him into his life, and when that man refuses to receive that gift, he is saying in essence, God, I do not hold in very high regard the gift that you're offering to me. Man despises that even today as Isaiah the prophet had said. There are three things that I want to share with you and have you to think with me about very briefly if possible. And that is those, these three things. First of all, in verse 11, there comes the suggestion of the greatest fact. The greatest fact. It is simply stated in two words. He came. I can tell you of no greater fact of history or of man's existence on this earth than those two simple words and what they reveal. He came, yes, unto his own. Have you ever tried to imagine what it would be if Jesus had not come? Can you imagine a world that you and I live in today and what we enjoy as a result of his coming, what we would not have, what we would not enjoy? What if the Lord Jesus had not been born? And I think it would be an interesting study indeed if you were to go through the Bible and discover the many instances in Scripture where you find that little word if. The Bible says, for example, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. But what if you do not believe on him? What if you refuse him? The whole conclusion of that statement is you cannot be saved. That is God's way of salvation. I think of the words of our Lord Jesus when he said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. What if he had not been lifted up? What if he had not died on the cross? There would be no hope of redemption, no promise of salvation, no forgiveness of sin if he had not been lifted up. Again, I think of what Paul said when he said, If Christ be not risen, can you imagine what our faith would be if Christ had not risen? How vain would be our gathering together here. How vain would be our prayers. How vain would be our songs. How vain would be our giving if Christ is not risen. And Paul summed it up when he said, If in this life only we have hope, we are of all men most miserable. And yet in this life we do have hope because he came. What a great fact indeed that is. Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, reveals in his own writings of history that at that time there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth. History records the very evidence of the fact that Jesus Christ did come to this earth. Our calendar marks the distinction between before Christ and after the death of Christ. I think of all the monuments that are built to him, all of the structures of churches around this nation and around this world, the heralding forth of the message of Jesus Christ. I think of the centers of learning, of higher education, of universities, of colleges. I think of medical centers and hospitals that literally have been erected because he came. I think as well of the civilization that you and I enjoy in this part of the world. 
And yet as you compare our civilization, uh, our standard of life, our way of life here in this western part of the world with parts of the world around us, oh, how grateful we ought to be and what evidence it is of the fact, indeed, as John said, he came. I'm glad I can tell you he did come. That not only he came to this world, but he they came into my heart. The night I confessed to him, I was a sinner and invited him to become my Lord and Savior. Could I share three things with you as to what if he had not come, if he had not been born? The first thing let me suggest to you is this, that all the promises given by God of a coming Redeemer would be broken. Throughout the pages of the Old Testament, there are those words of prophecy, the utterances by the men of God that a Messiah was coming, a deliverer would come, a root would come out of, out of Jesse, a stem out of Jesse. Uh, there would be one who would be born of a virgin, that his name would be called Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. You see, if Jesus had not come, this book would be a vain book. It would be no more meaningful to us than some other book of literature. But the truth is, God's promises are valid. And what God promised concerning His Son coming to this world and His incarnation, I want to tell you all of the other promises are as valid and as reliable as God's promise that a Savior would come. His promise not only of a Savior, but His promise of salvation. That promise is, is valid. That if a man will believe on the Lord Jesus, he shall be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. My friend, listen, you can be saved because the promise of God is valid. Not only of the saving of salvation, but even of our security in Christ. Those that come to him, Jesus said, I will in no wise cast out. That's a valid promise. He said, and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. I do not walk through life as a believer fearing that somehow I'm going to lose that eternal life for it is not I who do the ke- that does the keeping but our Lord does the keeping of those who've committed themselves to him. So the truth is I'm glad he did come for had he not come the promises of God would not be dependable and reliable even that a promise of God relative to our supplication, our prayers. I'm glad that I can come freely to him and present him my petitions and hear that he'll hear me and that he will answer in good time in his way according to his will. A second thing I think we need to think about if Jesus had not been born is this. We would never have known the real character of God. In the Old Testament he is called Elohim. The word that is used speaks of a God who is almighty, a God who is powerful, a God who is altogether holy. What does that do to those of us who are weak when we face an omnipotent one, an all-powerful being? We tremble in our shoes. What do we do who are so imperfect and unholy when we look upon one and think upon one who is absolutely holy? who has no thought or taint nor tendency toward sin. Ah, we tremble in our shoes. And yet the Old Testament reveals that kind of God. Even so is revealed to Israel as such a powerful, transcendent God that even Israel was forbid, forbidden to approach unto him. 
The curtain was hung between the outer court and the holiest of all. And none could enter but the high priest. And he only once a year as he brought the sacrifice, the, the blood of the sacrifice. In other words, we would not known that real character of God. We would only know him as some being that is far removed and, and is unapproachable. And, and certainly, as the Greeks would tell in their day, has no concern about the affairs of life. But I'm glad I find that when Jesus came, he revealed the beautiful, glorious, wondrous character of God. It is told in a story by Hector of a soldier who was going off to war in the olden days, dressed in his uniform with helmet and plume that was rising high above that helmet. He went out to the gate of the city to depart, but his wife, or, or his wife, brought with her his little boy to say a farewell to dad on his way to the war. And there, when the little lad saw his dad dressed in all of that plated armor and the helmet over his head and, and, the, and the, uh, the horrible looking sight that he must have been a baby, instead of the baby fleeing to its dad, it cringed in fear and clung to its mother, crying, and then the father, realizing the problem, removed the helmet from his head, showed his face, and with that, the little lad leaped from its mother's arms into the arms of its father. I think, my friend, that's exactly what happened when Jesus came. He revealed the character of God, that God loved this world that he cared, that his arms were open, that he was not a God who had come to condemn the world, but that rather he had come to save the world. I'm glad that he came because he reveals to me the character, the very heart of our wondrous God. Instead of the thunderings of Sinai, it is the tender, pleading, loving voice of a Savior upon a cross who is saying, I love you, come unto me. Not only that, but I think a third thought. If Jesus had not been born, the world would still be waiting in vain without hope and without God in the world. If he had not come, the world would still be waiting in vain. You see, he is the hope of the world. He is the hope not only by his first coming, but indeed the hope by his second coming. Our Lord has promised indeed just as much as the word promised he would be born. It has promised more so that he'll come again. And indeed he is the hope. He is the blessed hope of the child of God. But the, by, by reason of the fact that he came the first time as he was born is a confirmation of the truth that he will come again. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe in the coming of Christ the first time? Do you believe he was born? Let me ask you a second, and that is, do you believe he's coming again? Certainly no man can honestly believe in the first coming of Christ and the birth of Christ without believing in the return of that same Savior who promised that he would come again. Yet, we stand in hope today because a deliverer has come. Some years ago, a submarine had an accident and was submerged down beneath the waters of the, of the ocean out from Providence Town, Massachusetts. 34 men were in that submarine. They, re, they radioed an SOS on their uh, little telegraph uh, machine. 
And soon the rescuers were coming from all over. The operation was turned over to an admiral of the United States Navy. And yet when they came to try to rescue and the divers went down, there was no real radio communication other than the, the little tapping of the, of the Morse code. And yet when the divers came down to the sides of the sub, they could only hear the tapping of men on the inside with some metal object tapping out a little message in code. And the message would read, How long, how long must we wait? And again, how much longer now? And constantly those messages were heard by the divers who came to perform the rescue until finally there came that last tapped out message. But slow this time, faint. How much longer now? And no more the tapping was heard. 34 men died in that submerged submarine. There were rescuers who came, but they had no hope. I want to tell you something. We have a hope. For the deliverer, the redeemer has come. He is not powerless, but he is powerful to save. He is able to save all those who come unto God by him. Not one is he unable to rescue and to cleanse and change and transform and make anew. I'm glad that I can tell you today with all the joy of my heart, joy to the world, the Lord is come. He has come. The great news then indeed is that he came. He came as was promised. Isaiah 7, 14 says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. He has come. He not only came as was promised, but he came as a person. He came in the flesh. Now, I talked to you about that last Sunday. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He came as a person. And not only that, but he came to a place, a specific place. The prophet Micah had in chapter 5 of his prophecy and verse number 2 prophesied that he would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And that was the exact place where he was born. Even so, he came to an appointed place. And yet when he came, I tell you, he came in peace. John says in chapter 3 of his gospel, verse 17, he came not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But let me tell you something else. He came with a purpose. This was no coincidence nor accident. You see, the coming of Christ to this world was, was determined before the foundation of the world. Ere man had ever set foot upon this planet, God from eternity and the councils of eternity had determined a purpose for his coming to this world. And Matthew 1 verse 21 records it as the angel spoke to Joseph and said, She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Here's the purpose. For he shall save his people from their sin. I like that word saved, don't you? Any fundamental Bible-believing Baptist ought to like the word saved. I like that better than confirmed. I like that better than uh, deciding. I just like 
the term saved because that's what happened when Jesus came to my heart. He saved me. And so then he came with a purpose to what? Not get, uh, uh, upgrade education. Thank God for the byproduct of his coming has been that. But that wasn't the reason he came. He didn't come to improve our economic situation. He did not come to establish a government by man upon this earth. He came to save sinners. He came to give himself as a ransom for us. The greatest fact, he came. But look at the great family in the second place. He came unto his own. To his own. There he would to claim that rebellious, obnoxious crowd as his own. Better still, would he dare call us his own? Yes, we are his by right of creation. And yet, though he should disown us, he ought to turn all of us out. He should have let this whole world drive in the filth and vomit and vermin of its own sin. But yet he came unto his own. Though we had despised him, rejected him, yet he came. By right of creation he calls us his own. Not only that, but by reason of choice he came. A precious young child was adopted by a fine Christian man and his wife. And soon the child grew to the point in life where it began to question about the relationship. And the mother in good sense said, Honey, I want you to know you are adopted. And by reason of that, you are more special than any other child in this whole world. How is that the child said? Well, you see, she said, uh, when a child is born... Uh, Mother and dad have little choice, none at all, really. But we had a choice, and we picked you out. We chose you. I want you to know God chose those who believe in him. He chose you. He could have chosen a million myriad throngs of angels, but he chose. He chose you. He came to this world, to this prodigal planet to this sinful, rebellious world of ours. Yet he came and said unto his own. He reminds me of this, this reminds me of that scene of the Good Samaritan who found the man beaten and robbed and left almost dead. And that man of Samaria, when he came by, saw him and he went over to him and bound up his wounds and poured in oil and made provision for him. Now he didn't have to do that. Neither did God have to come to this world. Oh, yes, he had, he had to come in order for you to be saved. But simply, he didn't have to come. No one demanded that he come. No one superior to him, for none is above him, could say to him, you must go to that world and make provision for a brother. God didn't have to do that. And if you're a child of God, save his grace. Remember this, God did not have to save you. He didn't have to give you the gospel. He didn't, have to, he didn't have to tenderly woo your heart, but out of a choice, because he loved you, he came. He came, the greatest fact. He came unto his own, a great family. But I want you to look at the greatest fault. And his own received him not. What a blotch 
put a smear on the record of every man and woman on the face of this earth. The word received here comes from a word that means to receive from beside another. To receive what comes from another. In this instance, that that is that has come from God. But what an insult it is to a holy God who would permit the greatest of heaven to come to this world and yet man would snob and turn his back and refuse that very gift that God gave. 1 John 5 verse 10 talks about it and says, He that believeth not God hath made him a liar because he believeth not the record that God gave of his son. In other words, here is man saying, God, I know what your word says and I know that you came, but I don't believe you and I'm not going to receive you. I reject that. And there are reasons why men reject him. Number one, I think, is because man does not want to acknowledge he is a sinner in need of a Savior. He don't want to face that. That's hard on our pride. Oh, I may do something wrong, but I'm not a sinner. The Bible says we are. And sinners need a Savior more than anything else. You don't need a new car. You don't need a new house. You don't need a new suit. You don't need a new this or that except a new heart. And only our Lord can give that to you. So the whole story is he came to his own, his own received not. The great fault of man was that though he came, man refused him. The word fault is defined in your dictionary as whatever impairs excellence. An imperfection or defect in a person or thing, a failure, a blemish. The Bible uses that term to describe sin. If you see your brother overtaken in a fault. It is that which prevents excellence. You see, if today you have rejected Jesus Christ, what you're doing is cutting off that that God can make of your life, and that is a life of excellence, a life that excels, a life that is victorious, a life that is abundant. That's what Jesus Christ wants to give you. He has not come to take away. He has come to give to you. And the only thing that wants to take away is the garbage of your life, the filth of life, the sin of life, the disease of your soul. He wants to take that away. But he wants to give you life and to give it more abundantly. The great mystifying question to me is this. Why would any man refuse God's gift? Can you figure that out? Why would anybody Why would any man refuse what God offers him? When God has not come to do man harm, to condemn him, but rather to keep him out of hell, to spare him from judgment, to give him a home in heaven, to give him the peace that he's literally longing for, to give him that sense of security that he so longs to have, to give him meaning and purpose in life, and yet when God gives that, man refuses. That's what happened to Israel. You see, they wanted a Messiah, but they didn't want the Messiah. They wanted a Christ to come who would deliver them from Roman oppression. They sensed no need of uh, of deliverance from sin. We have Abrahamed our father, they said. How have we ever sinned? What's wrong with us? And yet our Lord came and man refused because he didn't recognize his sinner. We might as well ask, well, why not only men refuse, would any man refuse God's gift? Why would any man, woman, abandon a baby? Why would any woman abort a human life that she carries within her womb? Why? 
Is there any answer to that? I think there is. I think there are three basic answers. Number one, it is because the perverted self. Because man is perverted. You see, when God made man, he made him that he would love God, that he would walk with God, that he would submit to his will, and as a result, life would be lived at its zenith. But man chose another route. He chose a self-centered route. He chose a life that was to be lived in the realm of self to please himself. He didn't want to be inconvenienced. Many a precious human life is murdered in abortion because people don't want the responsibility. Cramps their lifestyle. In other words, there's no thought of another or of another life. It's only what I think of myself. One of the characteristics of the last days, the scripture said, would be men would be lovers of their own selves. Loving themselves. No concern for nobody else. Parents who have no concern for the spiritual welfare of their children. There are hundreds of mothers and dads right here in Abisham County this morning and there will be hundreds more next Sunday and the next who have no sense of spiritual responsibility to bring their children to the house of God, to let them hear about Christ, to let mother and dad set a standard and example of testimony in front of them. Oh, listen, what's wrong with man? He is perverted in himself. He loves himself, has no love for God. Not only that, but I believe it's because of the power of Satan that men refuse Christ. The Bible said the God of this world, Satan, hath blinded the mind of those who believe not lest they should come to the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. Hey, listen to me. Do you know you have an enemy dogging your trail, following your steps? He'll do everything in his power to keep you so blinded to your need of Jesus Christ that eventually he'll damn you eternally in hell. The power of the enemy to blind the minds of men to keep them from receiving this glorious gift. It's there under the tree, under Calvary's tree. The greatest Christmas tree of all. And the cross was God's Christmas tree. And the gift that he gave was on that tree. And yet Satan would blind the minds of men to not esteem him of any worth, of any need in their life. And refuse him. Finally, I believe men refuse him because of the pull of sin. Perverted self, yes. The power of Satan, yes. But the pull of sin. And to human depraved nature is like gravity. It pulls us to itself. Pulls us to itself. Man goes into sin when he is enticed and pulled away, James said, by his own lust. By his own lust. The greatest tr- fact is he came. The great family to which he came, this sinful world of ours, his own. The Jewish people, yes, but in a broader sense, the Gentile world. And the greatest fault is that man, though been, having been presented the gift of God, refuses that. But don't be like those in verse 11. Would you read one more verse, verse 12? And here's the rainbow, the wondrous ray of light. And verse 12 says, but, there's that contrast again, Lawson. But as many, that's the reverse. As many as received him, didn't reject him. But as many as received him, he gave them power, authority, to become the sons or the children of God, even to them that believe on his name. Let me ask you this. 
On Christmas morning, will the greatest gift of all be left under your tree? Untouched, unwrapped, rejected. I wonder how God in heaven will view that. I wonder how he views your life till this point. You've rejected him your life long. You've trampled under your feet the blood that he shed for your sins on the cross. You've counted the covenant as an unholy thing. I wonder how a holy God views that. I'm going to tell you how he views it. He says it's the most cardinal sin man commits. You see it as the sin of not believing on Christ, not receiving him that condemns you. It's not your drunkenness, your holotry, your whoredoms. It is the rejection of Jesus Christ. That's the basic sin. For he said, the man that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. The man who believes not, John 3 verse 36 says, the wrath of God abides on him. It's like the sword of Democles that hung over an enemy at his guest table with a thin thread that could break at any moment and plunge the sword into his enemy's bosom. The truth is God's judgment hangs over every Christ-rejecting, Christ-rejecting man and woman. And only the mercy of God keeps that brittle thread from breaking and judgment coming. I pray that if you have never received that greatest of all gifts, don't insult God anymore. Don't treat him with contempt. But open your heart. He's taken off the helmet. He's opened his arms. He's a loving, forgiving, merciful God. You say, but you don't know my sin. No, but he does. And he still invites you to come and wants to forgive and save. Let's pray together, please. Heavenly Father, I want to personally thank you as your servant, as one of your children that you love me enough that you had come to this earth. I never did anything nor did any of my fellow men do anything past, present, or future that deserved your coming. Lord, we know we deserve hell, the judgment. We have broken thy law. We have sinned against you. And yet, thank you, you sent the remedy. And today I pray that if there's one soul right here in this building. And I believe there's somebody, maybe many, who've all their life long left that greatest gift under the tree. They've never received him. May right now, by the working of the power of the Holy Spirit, you bring these to Christ. May they open their heart and in a childlike faith invite you in. Today, if you're here in this audience with your head bowed, and you realize you've never really received God's Son, His greatest gift. Would you pray a simple prayer in your heart after me? Just pray it in your heart. Dear Lord, I know you died for me because you love me. I know I am a sinner. But I come asking you into my heart to save me, forgive me, 
and give me a home in heaven. I do receive you as my Savior. I trust if you've prayed that prayer, you'll let it be known. And if you haven't as yet settled in your heart, you want to come in this invitation. Bow here at this altar. Don't be too proud or haughty to bow your knee before a holy God and ask his forgiveness. May God give us grace to do it. Let's stand together, heads bowed. As we sing a stanza of just as I am without a plea, but that is blood was shed for me. If you're here today, if you're here today, you've never asked Jesus Christ in your heart, you're ready to do that right now. Don't insult God. You, you won't insult me by rejecting Christ because see, God's the one who offers it. It's not the preacher, it's not the church. It's not your husband, your wife, your father, your mother. It's God. What do you do with that gift? While we sing then with heads bowed on the first stanza of just as I am, you know it in the heart. If today you're really willing to receive Christ the best you know how, I want you to leave your seat and come give me a hand. Bow here best you know how. Receive him as your Savior. Come on while we sing on the first stanza. the gift is God offers it what do you do with it what do you do with it take it or refuse it when you do it come receiving it I come I come on the second stanza singing it prayerfully come on come on I believe God talks to your heart you know what you need to do. Make your way. Make your way. You're going to leave him under the tree. Leave him out of your life. What an insult to God. How we break the heart of God. Won't you look this way? Thank you for being prayerful. We're going to sing one other stanza. Maybe here today, or child of God. Maybe one time in your life, you just kind of wrapped your life up and handed it over to the Lord and said, Lord, here it is. Your will be done in my life. Whatever you want to do with me, here it is. And maybe you found yourself slipping back and taking that gift out from under the tree. Going your own route, doing your own thing, whether God approves it, disapproves it, Selfish pursuit of life. Maybe God's talking to you about that. You ought to make that gift to him today after the gift he's given to you. Maybe you're here today and you need to unite with this church. You ought to be a part of a Bible-believing church. I believe in that. Jesus loved the church, gave himself for it. And today as we sing that one of the stands, if you're here, you need to come to the fellowship of this church by promise of letter from another church of like faith. Or you need to come by statement simply saying, I know I've been saved, but I've never followed the Lord in baptism. Or if you need to come simply and say, I've been saved, but I've never followed the Lord in baptism, I want to do that. While we sing the last stanza right now, quickly, without any waiting, come on and make that move in your life. Let's sing it together.